Telegram is handing over more user data to governments. WhatsApp has suffered a data breach. Anchor's Eufy cameras have seriously messed up. LastPass has suffered a data breach and a lot more news. Welcome to Surveillance Report 112, where we're dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the last two weeks. I am Low Energy Henry, surviving the recording session from TechLore. I am Nathan, who is regular energy, I think. Maybe a little more chill than usual from the new oil. Our promo segment this week is, as always, Patreon and Monero. We could really use your support over on Patreon. We try to keep all of the stuff that we do as objective as we possibly can. And one of the ways we're able to do that is through all of your contributions to give you this normally weekly news. And so we really appreciate all of our patrons. And we have some cool perks lined up over there. um, And we'd really appreciate your constant support over there. And if you don't want to support us through Patreon, we also have Monero, which is a more private way of supporting us. There are no perks to doing that, but we do see all of your contributions, but we don't really know who you are who supported us. So thank you um, for continually supporting us on Monero for the people who use that. One of our listeners reported that they weren't getting new episodes in their RSS feed. It turns out that whatever content blocker they used, not sure if that's through their DNS or what that is or their VPN, but their content blocker was blocking our RSS website that we switched over to, Substack. So if you're not getting new episodes and you are using a content adder tracker blocker, make sure to check those settings. And also there's a breaking story right now involving Twitter and some political stuff with Twitter right now. We are aware of this story before we get a million comments about it because it does have some privacy implications, but it just started breaking a few hours before we're recording this. So we'll be covering that next week, especially since uh, I'm sure there's going to be more details. I'm sure we think there's going to be more details that unfold as time goes on. And also, thanks for the patience and sorry for the delay. Uh, We were planning on recording last week, and then I, Nate wasn't going to be there anyway, but I was planning on doing something solo, and then I got totally swept up with things. And so, yeah, things didn't end up happening. We didn't communicate that too well. So thanks for working with us. Um, Today will be a longer day because we have two weeks of news to go through and we're going to try our best to go through it as quick as possible. Also, I will not be here next week, so it will probably be a Nate solo week. So I'll see you in two weeks. Henry's never here. Henry is never here. And Nate was never here last (laughs) week. (laughs) Oh my God, that was my favorite comment. That made me laugh so hard. All right, with all that, we're going to jump into our highlight story, which is about Telegram. The headline says, after Delhi High Court ruling, pronounced it right that time, Telegram discloses names, phone numbers, and IP addresses of users accused of sharing infringing material. I'm going to quote a little bit of the article here. Complying with the August 30th ruling that held the courts in India can direct a messaging app to disclose information of infringers, Telegram has disclosed the admin names, phone numbers, and IP addresses of the channels, which are accused of unauthorized sharing of the study material prepared by Campus Private Limited and its teacher, Neetu Singh, for various competitive examinations. Piracy is rampant on Telegram, and I'm sure that's not a shocker to most of us. And this particular, uh, well, it wasn't just one channel. There were several channels that were sharing um, Campus Private Limited. They they do a lot of, uh, from what I understand, they do a lot of, like, test preparation stuff. Understandably, they were kind of upset that people were sharing that around um, illegally. And so the Delhi court agreed with them and said, hey, Telegram, you got to turn over the user data of the admins who are running these channels. The big thing here that both of us are amused by is... Uh, Telegram's FAQ still insists that to this day they have turned over zero bytes of user data to any third parties, including governments. No, like that's the real problem here is, you know, people really nitpick problems with privacy and security tools, especially ones that advertise themselves as privacy and security tools, which Telegram does. It's like one of the main selling points of Telegram is privacy. And yet they do a lot of things that don't really align with that value. And they're not even transparent about what they're doing. They're 
They still claim zero bytes of data, yet their privacy policy still states they will actually hand over data. And then in their transparency report, it's still empty since 2018. And so I just ask people who are listening why... I'm genuinely asking, like, you should ask yourself this, like, why are you going to trust this entity who can't even, like, get their story straight about what data they hand over? And this isn't the first time this has happened, by the way. Um, Telegram's disclosed user data to governments in the past as well. This isn't the first time. And it's actually real data. It's not, like, something like Signal that, like, actual court documents have come out saying it really is just, like, timestamps and other basic information. Not things like names, phone numbers, IP addresses, and other information. So... That's my issue. I'm coming at this from a privacy and security angle. We're not, like, encouraging pirating here. Neither of us are. This is just, like, we're encouraging you to use tools that we can actually, like, give you evidence work. Or at least call a spade a spade. That's my thing. Like, if you want to use Telegram as a social network, that's fine. But don't call it a private encrypted messenger when the only thing that can be encrypted is one-to-one mobile chats. And on that note, we're going to move into data breaches. If you're like, wow, well, good thing I'm on WhatsApp. Oh no, you got hit too. So um, WhatsApp data leak, 500 million user records for sale. So this is another month and another meta-related data breach. So I'm going to, I don't have enough energy to rant about meta today. And for, I'm editing, so I'm going to save myself the time. Normally Nate's the one who has to cut like the 20 minutes of like off-camera Henry ranting about meta stuff. (laughs) So um, to get to the story, as of November 16th, someone was claiming to be selling a 2022 database of almost 500 million WhatsApp user mobile numbers, allegedly from 84 countries, including 32 million U.S. users alone. Other notable chunks come from Egypt, Italy, Saudi Arabia, France, Turkey, Russia, and the U.K. The seller did submit a sample to CyberNews, who were able to confirm the numbers were, in fact, legitimate. The seller did not say how they obtained those numbers, and Meta did not reply to a request for a comment. So I guess this is still unfolding. We're still trying to figure out what's going on here, even though it's been over two weeks. Uh, It's not looking good, though. Our next data breach comes from Twitter, where 5.4 million Twitter users' stolen data was leaked online, and more were shared privately. So in December of 2021, a Twitter API vulnerability was disclosed via HackerOne that allowed people to scrape non-public phone numbers and email addresses associated with Twitter IDs. And I want to say we covered that on Surveillance Report. I could be wrong about that, though. Uh, According to one researcher, this vulnerability was apparently somehow known before it got patched. Um, Usually that's that's what they call responsible disclosure. You You tell the company about it before you publicly tell people. So that way they can patch it and people don't start abusing it before you can fix it. Maybe it was a zero day that just coincidentally got discovered around the same time. Maybe the report got leaked. We don't really know. But either way, before it was patched, about 5.4 million Twitter user records were scraped, as well as another 1.4 million suspended users. So users who were already suspended, their data got caught up too. The suspended users, their information was not shared publicly, but uh, it was passed around in like private chats and the 5.4 million were shared publicly. It is now coming to light that apparently from this same vulnerability, there was somehow like an additional uh, 17 million records in a completely separate breach, but using the same vulnerability took place around the same time. And it's only now coming to light. The researcher and bleeping computer, the outlet both confirmed that this data was legitimate. It, it appears to be real and fresh. Well, you know, fresh of the time, but it's it's a new breach we haven't seen before. So um, yeah, Twitter was leaking data left and right. Not good. Air Asia allegedly hit with a ransomware attack. Data of 5 million passengers and employees reported 
compromised. Uh, so databreaches.com claims to have received sample data for confirmation, which included passenger IDs, full names, booking IDs, and employee photos, secret questions and answers for account recovery, most likely. So again, make sure you randomize those or use a password manager for those. Nationality, date of births, country of birth, location, and higher date. The airline allegedly did engage the criminals via chat, but refused to pay the ransom and stopped communicating. But there's no confirmation if that's true or what the ransom amount was. The airline did confirm a cyber attack, but not a data breach. Florida State tax website bug exposed filers data. So this exposed names, home and business addresses, bank account and routing numbers, social security numbers, and quote, other unique tax identifiers, unquote, for over 713,000 business owners in the state of Florida. The researcher who discovered this said that they were able to access, modify, and delete business owner data by modifying the web address. Um, This is what's known as insecure direct object reference. If you modify the web URL, you can access somebody, like another page that you weren't supposed to access or somebody else's account or something like that. So... Very unfortunate. Uh, the flaw was fixed, but the researcher notes that they never actually replied to him. Like, he emailed them, like, hey, I found this flaw. And then a few days later, he noticed, like, oh, it's fixed now. But they never emailed him back, like, oh, thanks, we'll work on that. So, you know, the state is just being the state. They're like, yeah, we don't, you know, nobody accessed the data, but they didn't say how they know that. They said that two companies have audited the site, and now the site is secure, but they didn't say who the two companies were, so nobody can verify that. So, just usual stuff unfortunately. A flaw allowed a man to access private information of other Brinks home security customers. Edmonton-based Andrew Kopp was attempting to troubleshoot a sensor issue in his new Brinks home security system and found he was able to view the information of over a hundred other customers when he logged in online. This included names, addresses, emergency contacts, cell numbers, payment history, and details of their security systems. He spent about six months trying to get Brinks to fix the bug, but they only did after he got the media involved. Brink says it's because the support contractors he spoke to did not escalate the case properly. Not a good sign. This next story is actually really interesting, and this is probably one of those stories you should, like, share with your friends and family to be like, hey, this is why you need to use good passwords and stuff. Cybercriminals steal $300,000 in DraftKings credential stuffing attack. Quoting the article, the common denominator for all accounts that got hijacked seems to be an initial $5 deposit followed by the attackers changing the password, enabling two-factor on a different phone number, and then withdrawing as much as possible from the victim's linked bank accounts, unquote. So basically, they would break in, they would make sure the account was valid by pulling out a little bit of money, and if it worked, they'd lock you out, change the password, change the 2FA, and then just drain your bank account, and you just got to sit there and watch, which I'm sure is a wonderful feeling. Affected customers complained that they were unable to reach support, so support for this uh, DraftKings is not very good, which, by the way, if anyone doesn't know, DraftKings, I think, is like a, it's like an app for sports betting. You can bet on the game and win money. So this is your reminder to use unique, strong passwords on every site and enable two-factor, because this, this was all credential stuffing. The company didn't really do anything wrong here other than have bad support, They didn't, you know, they didn't have a breach. They didn't have a vulnerability, at least this time. They didn't do anything wrong. It's all these people who reuse the same garbage password everywhere. And especially if you've been on the internet for a long time, especially if you haven't been using password managers from day one, your old password is probably out there in more than a few places. So yeah, use, use strong, unique passwords everywhere. And again, enable two factor when you can. Well, hey, uh, speaking of password managers, if you're like, wow, I'm going to go download LastPass. Well, uh, LastPass says hackers access customer data in a new data breach. So the attackers breached the cloud storage using information stolen during a previous security incident from August 2022. They have not said what specific data was accessed at the time of this recording, but said password vaults should still be safe. LastPass does have a history of quite a few security breaches. Um, I don't think I have an issue speaking for both of us when I say generally we recommend 
People use either Bitwarden if you want cloud-based stuff and KeePass if you want something local and offline that you can make cloud-based on your own. ICE launches investigation after data of more than 6,000 immigrants exposed. So a spreadsheet containing the names, nationalities, and locations, and probably other data, but the article didn't really specify that, of immigrants seeking protection in the U.S. was inadvertently uploaded to a public-facing website. The exposure could put immigrants at risk from individuals, gangs, and even governments that they are attempting to flee. Because again, these are all people who are seeking uh, asylum, basically. ICE is currently investigating, and I keep forgetting to say, ICE is uh, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement in the U.S., in case you're not aware. It's the immigration agency. They're investigating who may have accessed the data. They're looking at their logs, seeing who may have accidentally noticed it. And all the impacted immigrants are currently in ICE custody. So um, for some of them, that might actually be a good thing right now. Just... So they're safe from whoever they're trying to run from, but yeah. Major Canadian cryptocurrency exchange CoinSquare says client data was breached. That's pretty much it. It claims that the customer assets were secure in cold storage and are not at risk, but they still expose data, including customer names, email addresses, residential addresses, phone numbers, uh, date of births, device IDs, public wallet addresses, transaction histories, and account balances. So you better hope you don't have enough crypto to make someone notice. Um, but also it seems like uh, the actual finances that were stored there should be safe. But pretty much everything else was compromised. And keep your crypto off of exchanges, people. Because uh, that's actually one of the rare situations where an exchange was breached, but no funds were stolen. And our final data breach is uh, a little bit of closure. Metabank uh, hackers, Metabank cyber criminals, declare case closed as trove of stolen data is released. Not good closure, but still closure. For those of you who don't remember, this is a, a big data breach. Uh, Metabank is like one of the biggest health insurance providers in Australia, and um, this has been going on for weeks. The cyber criminals have published all of the data because Metabank refused to pay the ransom. It was about six gigs, and it contained 9.7 million customers' personal details and health claims for 500,000 customers. Metabank says that the personal data leaked is, quote, not sufficient to enable identity and financial fraud, unquote. Despite the fact that in the past, the samples that they submitted to like prove they actually breached this data included names, dates of birth, and passport numbers, among other stuff. Uh, so I don't know how identity theft works in Australia, but here in the U.S., I feel like that's plenty of information. <laughs> uh, Metabank has also added two-factor to the contact centers in order to verify customer identity. So if people call in trying to pretend to be the customer, hopefully this two-factor will slow them down and stop them. So, yeah, not good. Um, and a lot of you guys did write in and let us know. You can freeze your credit in Australia. So if you are an Australian, look into that. You can do that. Companies. Oh, I got another fun one. Spyware vendor Veriston exploited Chrome, Firefox, and Windows zero days, says Google. The exploitation framework in question compromises three parts. A Chrome renderer bug that allows it to escape Chrome's sandboxing. A malicious PDF deployment that contains an exploit for Windows Defender and a set of Firefox exploits for Windows and Linux. The Firefox exploit dates back to Firefox 64 from all the way in December 2018. Google has not seen these bugs in the wild and speculates that they are hoarded zero days. I don't have much to say here. I don't know if Nate does, but um, these are just common security exploits. It doesn't mean necessarily that any of these things is now insecure. It just means you need to keep your stuff up to date. I will say it's pretty impressive. You know, this is almost like I mean, not not quite at that level, but like Stuxnet level in the sense that they're chaining together multiple vulnerabilities to do things. It's pretty impressive, but yeah, um, just got to keep your stuff up to date and be cautious. 
It's the best I got. All right, our next story comes from India, where the internal systems of CDSL, which is uh, India's central bank, if I understand that correctly, was compromised after detecting malware. So the article describes CDSL as India's largest central securities depository, and the malware, what kind of malware it was, was not disclosed. So we don't know if, I don't know if this was like something they've never seen before, they just didn't want to say who it was. Uh, They said that there was no evidence to indicate indicate any kind of data theft, but that was about all we know. Um, At the time this story was published, the website for CDSL was taken down. It's probably back up by now because I know this is a couple week old story. And the main reason we're sharing this is to remind you guys, financial systems are now digital and vulnerable. So plan for that accordingly and just, again, be cautious. India's All India Institute of Medical Services was hit by outages after a cyber attack. This is their leading public medical institute. The outages are affecting hundreds of patients and doctors accessing primary healthcare services, including patient admission, discharge, and billing systems. This has been ongoing since Wednesday, and they've had to move to manual operations such as handwritten notes. This is not the first time that the medical industry, and especially hospitals, have been hit by cyber attacks. It is a very serious issue, and again, people, cyber attacks aren't always just about data. So... Keep that in the back of your mind when you think about the severity of these problems. Google is not deleting users' abortion-related data despite post-Roe promise. Uh, So the title really says it all. After Roe v. Wade was repealed here in the U.S., which removed federal protections for abortions, regardless of how you feel about that, Google said that they would automatically delete any abortion-related data uh, just to protect people's privacy. And uh, this advocacy group called Accountable Tech ran a couple of experiments across several months. This was recent. I think their most recent one was in October. And they found that that was not true. Uh, some of the things they did, they tried Googling abortion providers and other abortion-related things. Uh, they tried using Google Maps to drive to and enter clinics. So they had Google Maps running the whole time. And they tried scheduling abortions on their Google calendars just to see what Google was retaining. And then they went in and checked their accounts and looked in their history, and they found, quote, digital trails in their activity logs going back weeks including the precise routes they took to get to the clinics. And again, all of this was despite the fact that Google said they would delete this data automatically. Google defended themselves by pointing out that users can disable this data collection in their accounts, they can manually delete the data, or they can set it to delete on a rolling basis. Uh, But yeah, just a reminder, um, if, if you're doing anything sensitive, you need to be really cautious about who you're using and be aware that they may be retaining logs. And that's not good. It's a bummer because for any situation, not just specific to this, it just requires so much education for people to even know how to do certain things. So it's it's pretty sad, Um, especially when they say like, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. Like, yeah, we'll just automatically handle that for you. And then people are like, yeah, sure, cool. (laughs) And it it can be about anything. It can just be about like protecting your financial privacy when you're shopping online. Like people just don't know what to do and there's a big educational gap. I was going to say, I think that's the real issue here, regardless of how you feel about abortion, is the fact that they said they were going to delete this thing and now they're lulling people into a false sense of security. So, and and that could go for anything. You know, if, if something, I don't know, I don't want to get on too much of a soapbox, but you know, if, if you replace abortion, if you're anti-abortion, you replace that with something else that you're in favor of, And if Google said, like, if that thing got outlawed and then Google was like, hey, we're going to automatically delete that data and they didn't, you'd be pretty pissed, right? Like, yeah, it's just, it's lulling people into a false sense of security, I think is the real danger there, like you were saying. Web browsers drop mysterious company with ties to U.S. military contractor. Trescor is a root certificate authority with close questionable ties to the U.S. intelligence community as exposed by a Washington Post story on November 8th. 
Very interesting story, by the way. I really recommend checking it out if you get the time. We're just keeping this short today. But Mozilla and Edge investigated as well and have decided to remove TrustCore as a trusted CA. So I guess that's a step forward. But yeah, I'd really recommend checking out the story because it's a pretty interesting, weird one. Okay, let's talk about Meta, who is rolling out new privacy updates for teens on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, these are really superficial changes uh, in in the sense that they're public-facing privacy improvements. Uh, they don't really... It, it protects their privacy from other users, but it's not really doing anything to protect them from Facebook, which is not at all surprising to our regular listeners. The main change is that minors will automatically be opted into more private defaults, which is good. Uh, Plus, suspicious adults will no longer be shown to teens as people you may know and uh, will no longer have the option to message the teens. So suspicious adults, they're defining that as like adults who were recently blocked by another minor. Um, Again, they will no longer be shown to the teen and they will not be able to message teenagers. So which I I think is probably pretty fair. Um, I mean, there could definitely be some some false positives there, but generally across the board, I think it's pretty safe that there's not a lot of, can't think of a lot of times I would be needing to message a random teenager on Facebook that I didn't already know. So this is probably a pretty fair change. I was kind of laughing because I would just assume that this would already be a system in place. Like they know the age. <laughs> of everyone. You would assume very wrong. Yeah, I know. I just assumed that was already a thing. Like, oh, if someone is like an adult, and, like, you know the ages of everyone on Facebook because they pretty much KYC everyone at this point. If you know everyone's ages, and, right. like, this person got blocked by a teenager, it's like, oh, maybe that should be, like, a red flag. But at least at least they're on it now. Yeah, but right. I, was, I just would assume that was a thing already, considering, like, how invasive they know everything <laughs> about everyone. All right. So Google Chrome Canary, which is Google Chrome Nightly version, gets experimental encrypted client hello support, ECH. Encrypted client hello, also referred to as secure SNI, improves the privacy of internet connections. It is pretty technical, but broken down to its core, it protects host names from being exposed to the internet service provider, network provider, and other entities with the capability of listening in on the network traffic. It's likely that this is the start of ECH as a wider Chromium feature, including browsers like Brave, and Firefox already added this back in 2021. So that's kind of cool that Firefox is already on top of that. So, yeah, just keep that on your radar. Our next story also comes from Google. It says Google is testing end-to-end encryption for group chats in the Messages app. If this sounds familiar, that's because Google already started rolling out, uh, or actually, I think it's finished rolling out, RCS, which is their end-to-end encrypted messaging, in one-to-one messages. So now they're testing it in group chats, so they're slowly expanding it. So far, to my knowledge, RCS only works in Google stock messaging app. Please let us know if that's not true. Uh, Surveillance report at protonmail.com, because that would be really disappointing, because we've also covered a story in the past about how Google's uh, messages app sends a lot of unnecessary metadata back to Google, including hashes hashes of the message itself. So it kind of sucks that right now, again, if I understand this correctly, you kind of have to pick between... Do I want the end-to-end encrypted SMS or do I want Google not getting a copy of my messages, basically? And that's a really crappy choice to have to make. But, I mean, still, it is, you know, RCS is end-to-end encrypted and it's it's an attempt to replace text message. For all you people who were like, it's a good thing Signal's killing SMS. SMS is bad. It should die. Here's your replacement. It's RCS. And they're now rolling it out to a wider audience. So, yeah. This story's from New Zealand. Foodstuffs is using facial recognition technology at 29 North Island supermarkets. They are justifying this as a crime prevention measure in response to a 31% increase in theft, burglary, robbery, assault, and other aggressive, violent, and threatening behavior across its stores. 
Foodstuff says they have been working with the Office of the Privacy Commissioner on the appropriate use of the technology. Currently, consumers can only find out if their data was collected by submitting a, requ a request under the Privacy Act. I'm very curious to see if they're able to prove any drop in that 31% increase in theft, burglary, robbery, assault by employing these, this facial recognition technology. I guess we'll see. I just realized that. You would think that with all like the facial recognition stuff that's been rolled out, I feel like we would have seen some stats to be like, hey, we were able to drop crime by this much and we could directly you know, attribute that to the fact that we employed facial recognition. I haven't seen a story like that. I haven't actively looked for it either, though. So I don't want to use that as a reason to say this stuff can never work. Um, but I would like to look more into that. I'd say that's probably a good opportunity if anybody has any research about that to go ahead and let us know. Our next story comes from Brave, who has debuted privacy-preserving ads in its search engine, or is debuting. So um, they're contextual ads. Brave, they really go out of their way to, like, hype this up and, like, it's privacy-preserving, it's anonymous, it protects your privacy, they're non-invasive. And then when they finally explain it, again, they, they dress it up in, in super nice language, but they're just contextual ads. That's all they are. They use your search query, your country, and the device type to show you ads based on that information. And since they claim that they don't track you, if that's true, that means that they can't keep targeting you. So they're just contextual ads. The ads will also be clearly marked, so that's nice. None of this, you know, um, they, they showed a screenshot of it. They're very, they have a little, it says ad up in the corner. Again, clearly marked. The real story here, in my opinion, that they really kind of bury the lead on is that Brave is also offering a $3 a month premium subscription without ads, uh, which to their defense is really, really cheap. Uh, they also said that in the future, they plan to let users, quote, earn rewards for their attention to those ads, unquote, by allowing, uh, basically, so for those who don't know, Brave has this thing where you can earn BAT, which is like their, their little Ethereum token. You can earn that by uh, letting ads run. And I've seen it before. I've tried it out. It's basically as you're browsing, there'll be a little pop-up in the corner that's like, hey, buy this crypto hardware wallet. It's always crypto-related stuff. Hey, play this Web3 game, all this stuff. And based, and if you just let it do that on certain web pages, then you earn that. And they're basically saying they're thinking about adding these search ads to that same system. So you can earn that if you see an ad. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the whole story. And uh, Henry notes here that the downside is they're probably going to whitelist their own ads in their built-in ad blocker. So if you're only relying on their ad blocker, you're probably going to start seeing these ads pretty soon. Um, yeah, that's kind of the yeah, downside. Yeah, that's about like, it. Yeah, that's the downside of like a centralized ecosystem like this is that like if they can roll out whatever they want, you kind of have to trust them on that. So that, that's sucky. Like as someone who uses Brave, people are like, oh, Henry, you always show Brave. And it's like, yeah, it's pretty good at what it does. But this is like one of the like the genuine downsides. It's like now like if you're using Brave for all your ad blocking and they release their own ads, like they're not going to block their own ads. Um, also, a quick thought you mentioned, you mentioned the subscription thing. It'd be cool if you can pay that three dollar a month subscription with the like bat that you earned from Brave Rewards. You think that would be a thing <laughs> if they actually like believed in their own token and like spending the the freaking token? Also, oh, I just I did want to add one little thing because I know people were like, oh my god, they introduced ads. Oh my god, and you're like, oh, you're just like typing out your angry comments. I can hear them coming from here, and. Like, every other search engine does this. So what they're doing is the same thing as DuckDuckGo. It's the same thing as StartPage. It's pretty much the same thing as every other search engine that is somewhat privacy-respecting. They all use contextual advertising. That's pretty common. The only, um, I guess, main search engine that doesn't do that is something like Search, 
S-E-R, S-E-A-R-X. Cerex or whatever. Yeah, Cerex. Um, that one will probably not have advertising, but it's a little more convoluted to use, and it probably has a little bit more configuration, but check that out if you want something that's like open source and can be like even self-hosted if you wanted to. Windows 8.1 support is ending in January 10th. F in the chats for an interesting era for Microsoft. I can't imagine there's that many Windows 8.1 users out there as it was a pretty notoriously... Actually, Windows 8 was despised. Windows 8.1 people were like more okay with, but even then, like, I think people were very happy to see Windows 10 come along. But if you're out there and you're still using it, you should probably update to a supported operating system because you're going to get screwed pretty quickly with security issues once they stop supporting that. My, I never used 8.1, but I will never forget back in the Windows 8 era, I bought a laptop like from, I think it was HP, like from their website, shipped from China, the whole nine. And when I booted it up and turned it on for the first time and it does the whole welcome walkthrough, it, uh, it failed to install Windows. And I had to like reboot the laptop before it installed correctly. I went into Windows hey, expecting to hate it because I tried it after like six months after everyone was just complaining about it. And I I went in with such low expectations that I was like, okay, this is all right. I just think it was too touchscreen based. That was like the real problem. They didn't do a good job of separating the touchscreen elements from the point and click elements. And Windows 10, I think they finally figured it out. Like, oh, yeah, people actually like kind of want a desktop experience even though they have a touchscreen. They don't want this like weird tablet thing, which is why I'm curious about Apple now. Because there's, like, rumors about Apple releasing, like, a 15-inch iPad Pro, and Apple's making their iPad more and more like the MacBook, and people keep thinking of, like, are they going to combine macOS and iPadOS? And so it's interesting to see Apple trying to figure out this whole question of, like, tablets versus laptops. I don't know. Tech questions, not privacy questions. (laughs) With that, we'll jump into research, and we're going to start off with Apple. Apple Devices Analytics contain identifying iCloud user data, claims security researcher. Uh, so a researcher found that Apple Device Analytics includes an ID called a DSID, which stands for Directory Services Identifier. The analysis found that the DSID identifier uh, found that the DSID is unique to every iCloud account and can be linked to a specific user, including their name, date of birth, email, and associated information stored on iCloud. This contradicts their privacy policy, which says that no analytics collected can be linked back to a specific user. So that's pretty much the whole story. I I wanted to I wanted to go ahead and add a little bit of uh, commentary to that because I know every time we cover stories like this, people are always like, "Oh, why do you why do you shill Apple?" And so the thing is, there's some context here. Uh, so number one. We are catering to people who are our target audience. Like, a lot of you guys are really tech savvy, and that's cool. That's fine. We love you guys. Thank you for being here. But our target audience, both at the New Oil and at Tech Lore, is generally people who are not super tech savvy, who are not, maybe might be might be interested in self-hosting, but they've never done it before, or might be interested in flashing a custom OS on their phone, but never done it. People who are kind of new to this whole thing. That's our target audience. So this means that for those people they typically have two choices, Android and iOS. And again, if if they want to go ahead and, you know, flash something, good for them. The, well, let me get to that. Out of those two choices, there are strengths and weaknesses. We covered a story the other, the last episode about how Google was collecting location data even after there was a little toggle that said, don't collect my data. We kind of don't really have any clear winners here. Like, they're both lying. They're both being 
jerks. Like, yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I don't think we're trying to like shill them. I don't think we're trying to be like, you know, oh, Apple's better than Android or Android's better than iOS. We're not trying to do that. We're trying to say like, hey, here's an example of something they did right. Here's something they did good. And then obviously we also cover stories like this about like, hey, here's Apple screwing up and not being cool. We do that for both of them. So getting back to what I was saying a minute ago, if you're one of those people who's comfortable flashing a custom OS, then good for you. You, you don't have to worry about this kind of stuff for the most part. You can not worry about it and like go on and do other things. These don't really apply to you. Furthermore, if you are one of those people, if you want us to stop shilling Apple and Google, as you so call it, then you need to do your part to help make these things grow. Support the projects you love. Either donate to them or what would really help people is find those non-tech people around you your friends and family who are like, yeah, I hate Apple, I hate Google, but I don't really feel comfortable messing with my phone, be like, hey, I'll help you do it. I'll walk you through it. I'll come over one afternoon and do it with you. That, in my opinion, is the best way that we're gonna start seeing wider adoption of other solutions. And then when stories like this come around, we don't have to worry about it so much. Those were just, those were the notes I had, because I already know there's gonna be people who are gonna point at this and they're just gonna be like, oh, why do you guys always promote iOS when clearly they're so evil? And again, Google is evil too. They all suck. If you want better options, go be the change you want to see in the world. Help other people get to that level. Yeah, oh, 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 I'll throw something in here too, because why not? Um, we did we get some pretty consistent, you know, like we try to honestly ignore most comments because, like, a lot of the, not like the good ones, but like a lot of the comments were like, okay, yeah, sure, like we'll we'll respond to like actual criticism, but a lot of things were just like what. Um, and one of those things is like, why are you promoting this? And it's like we're not promoting anything. We're covering the news. This is a news show so the news involves us covering things we don't like talking about 90 percent of the things i cover i don't like on these stories doesn't mean i'm promoting it it just means i'm telling we're you supporting what's going data on. breaches <laughs> so yeah like we're promoting it, data breaches <laughs> yeah 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 exactly like you think we're promoting other things like you think we're promoting your information being stolen by tax websites and sent to facebook that's the next story but like we're not doing that like we're literally <laughs> telling you like what's going on so like i don't understand like sometimes we do throw in our thoughts and we say that very clearly like this is personal opinion like i was gonna say about this story personal opinion this is my side of things not nate's i'm i'm still gonna always recommend uh, an apple iDevice over like any android device to most people in my life it's just generally gonna be better for privacy and security for them from what I've done and what I've researched. Um, I'm not including custom ROMs in that. I'm just saying between those two. But that's a personal thought. doesn't mean I'm promoting anything. Like, I'm still going to cover the story the same way Nate would have covered that because, like, this is clearly an issue with Apple devices. So Yeah, on that note, I actually disagree with you on that one. I'm like, like, I, I wouldn't, for me, it's a it's a context, it's a situation depends thing. Like, who am I recommending it to? Because I feel like at this point, they're, between the settings you can change and, like, the security of them, I feel like they're, well, with Android, this is a little more complicated because there's, like, 20 million flavors and a lot of them are worse. But, like, you know, like, iPhone versus Pixel, for example, I feel like it would really depend on, like, the person behind it. How tech-savvy are they? What do they want the device to do? What's their lifestyle like? Things like that. But I'd recommend iOS over Android. It's Well, it depends. I might. But there's also other people that I might, like, actually, I think an Android would really fit you better, so. I agree. Yeah. And there's – no, I totally agree with that. And there's some things with Android – the, the thing for me, the largest selling point of Android has actually less to do about like its own privacy and security and just the amount of tools that are enabled on the whole platform, which I'm sure is what you experience too, because you have access to like all of F-Droid and you can do things like it actually has a VPN that works pretty much 
globally, unlike an iPhone. Um, so like for people who don't even use VPNs, they're not going to know or care about that. But for someone on Android, that's an important thing. You can have user accounts on Android so you can compartmentalize things better. You can have work profiles and things on Android. You can have things like really complex firewalls that you just can't have on iOS. Split tunneling is a thing on Android. Split tunneling is not a thing on iOS. And so there's like a lot of these little privacy and security things that like more techie people, I think, can really appreciate and utilize. Oh, it's my turn. So uh, I already mentioned this, but tax filing websites have been sending users' financial information to Facebook. Uh, once again, this is the MetaPixel. This is kind of like Google Analytics that lives on a lot of websites. Meta Facebook has their own version of that called the Pixel, and that is being included on a, some of these websites, and it can track things like income filing status, refund amounts, and college scholarship amounts. This was found on sites like H&R Block, Tax Account, and Tax Layer. So again, Tax Act. Tax Act, thank you. And so just remember that places like Facebook, even if you don't have a Facebook account, they can still follow you around the internet. And on this note, Meta has now been sued for collecting financial information through tax filing websites. Uh, there's already a class action lawsuit filed on December 1st in federal court on behalf of anonymous plaintiffs who filed their 2020 taxes online using H&R Block. Okay, our next research story. Anchors Ufi, I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm going to level with you guys. Uh, Ufi cameras caught uploading content to the cloud without user consent. So according to researcher Paul Moore, he purchased a Ufi doorbell dual, which was meant to be a device that stored video recording on the device. He found that Ufi is uploading thumbnail images of faces and user information to its cloud service when cloud functionality is not enabled. So, and that that might seem like it's not too crazy by itself. Like it's it's just like a thumbnail, right? But more suggests that Ufi is also able to link facial recognition data collected from two separate cameras and two separate apps to users, all without the owners being aware. Actually, well, there's there's worse. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm kind of going in order. So Moore received a response from Yuffie. Like, he wrote them, and he was like, hey, what's going on with this? Yuffie confirmed that it is uploading event lists and thumbnails to AWS, but said that the data is not able to leak to the public because the URL is restricted, time-limited, and requires account login. In response to that, this is where it gets worse. Uh, Moore suggested that Yuffie camera streams can be watched live using an app like VLC, but little information on the exploit is available at this time. So, uh, basically he was like, yeah, that's not true, but I'm also not going to totally expose everything for people's safety. He said that unencrypted Yuffie camera content can be accessed without authentication, which is alarming for users. So, yeah, um, not a good week for home security systems. First we had Brinks, now we had this. Henry just wanted to mention here, uh, the WAN show, which I believe is part of the Linus Tech Tips family, uh, they actually dropped Anchor as a sponsor over this. Like, that's how serious this is. Even they were like, dude, we can't be shilling you to our, our viewers. This is bad. So, yeah, not not a good week to have a home security device. All right, real quick one. Uh, a Hyundai app bug allows anyone to unlock and start the car remotely. This also affects Genesis vehicles. The researcher found that they could add characters to the end of an existing account email during registration, which fools the system and gives it access to the existing user account. From there, they can use the app to perform authorized tax tasks like starting and unlocking the car. It's very obscure and targeted, but still relatively trivial to pull it off. Um, it, just, it does require knowing the email address and using the script created. So this isn't like a real defense against this, but if you happen to use aliases for your emails... There's like little tiny attacks like this that probably can be prevented if you have aliases set up and you don't use the same email for everything. Okay, our next research is an actual paper. Uh, the headline's a little wordy, but it says, too tired and in too good of a mood to worry about privacy. Explaining the privacy paradox through the lens of 
uh, yeah, through the lens of effort level in information processing. I was gonna quote the whole abstract here. It's about a paragraph long, but you know, we're trying to keep this brief. We're trying to keep this brief, but here's kind of the basic uh, in a nutshell. So researchers are investigating the privacy paradox, which is basically where you say you care about privacy, but you don't act like it because you're, you know, using Facebook 24 seven on the app on your phone. So they're basically trying to figure out why that is. And they basically narrowed it down to, I want to say about three things. It could be due to not having the mental bandwidth to deal with it. Or some people call that spoons or emotional bandwidth or whatever. You just don't have the mental energy to deal with it. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you could be in such a good mood that you just don't want to ruin the, the vibe or both. It could be a mix of both. You know, maybe you're tired, but you're also in kind of a good mood. Um, this is probably a no brainer for people, but again, you know, Henry always points out that like, when we have this research, it adds that validity because it's like, hey, here's actual research saying something. And also understanding something is the first step to changing it or acting on it. So um, this was a really good paper. I recommend you guys go check it out or at very least, you know, abstract and, and conclusion. Yeah, it's, you know, again, first step is understanding it. And the privacy paradox, I think, is something most of us have struggled with. So Yeah, and I think this one is, I want to, I haven't read this one myself, but I'd love to read it because it sounds like really interesting research. And I'd be curious to see how this cognitive capacity issue applies to really any modern day issue. I feel like this is the same thing with environmental concerns. I'm sure most people, if you ask them on the streets, hey, do you care about protecting the environment? They're going to say yes, as most people would probably say they care about their privacy. But then when you actually break down, like, well, what do you, I know I'm not trying to pin environmental issues on individuals. I know that's a whole thing. Uh, because it's not necessarily the individual's responsibility. There's a lot bigger things at work, but individual people do have some amount of power in that, just like you have some amount of power over your privacy. Um, and so I'd just be curious to see how this cognitive capacity problem applies to different issues around us every day. We only have so many things to give a fuck about, so. <laughs> yeah, and that's really the issue. If you guys aren't aware, there has been, a, I don't know if there's actually been studies, but there's been a lot of suggestion that like, you can only make so many decisions a day. And that's why notoriously, uh, I think it's Warren Buffett allegedly uh, has like a cheeseburger every day for lunch. Same thing, because that's one less decision for him to make. And I think that's, um, again, I don't know if this is true, but allegedly that's why Steve Jobs always wore the turtleneck because one less decision to make. He's always, and, and so that's really a lot of like, um, not to get off topic, but a lot of the like time management and how to improve your life and improve your productivity. A lot of that advice is about automating these little things because the less you have to think about it the easier it, like you can dedicate that brain power to other things so yeah i don't know that's just that's one of those fascinating things to me i'm really fascinated by that mastodon for people who think we shill mastodon who more news mastodon is vulnerable to multiple system configuration problems this came specifically from the infosec.exchange instance where files uploaded to storage buckets were left unsecured and publicly accessible take a shot and they fix the vulnerability after being notified this is not unique to that instance remember you are trusting your admin and your instance to be able to host mastodon securely for you and to handle your data that is the pro and con of federation that's just the reality of things you can have an admin that treats everything better than twitter and you can have an admin that treats it worse than twitter i do find it fun though that this was on the infosec exchange instance because they should like not have this problem. Yeah, right? Because it's InfoSec. <laughs> that was, that was, yeah. That was <laughs> savage. Okay, our next story says, apps with over 3 million installs leak admin search API keys. Um, so we see stuff like this all of the time. This comes specifically from the Algolia API key and application ID. 
and it exposed the ability for um, non-authorized users to do things like browse or delete the index, add or delete records, change settings, get access logs, etc. I'm not going to lie, this is one of those stories where a lot of this kind of went over my head. Like, I know, I kind of know what an API is, and I know what admin capabilities are, but a, a lot of the other details kind of went over my head. But here's the thing I thought was really interesting about this story. The types of apps that they found this vulnerability in, food and drink, education, fitness, photography, lifestyle, productivity, medical, and business. Normally, when we see this kind of um, like fast and loose t- users have too many permissions or it's leaking data, we see that in really shady apps, you know, like um, adding more filters to your camera or like PDF readers and just kind of truthfully crap that I don't think most people need on their phones. But I think this just shows how hard security can be sometimes. You know, anybody can screw it up. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try harder, but, you know, it's just it's not always people being malicious. Sometimes things security is just hard sometimes. Final story of the week. Acer fixes UEFI bugs that can be used to disable secure boot. Just to summarize this, they fixed this high severe high severity vulnerability affecting multiple laptop models that would enable local attackers local attackers to deactivate UEFI secure boot on targeted systems. For those who don't know, secure boot is just a feature on, I think, predominantly Windows-based machines that uh, pretty much requires only signed applications to run on boot. We're both assuming that this requires physical control of the device because they say local attackers, but it might just require root access. Either way, keep yourself up to date because the issue is fixed. And that's always the takeaway from most of these problems. Now let's move into politics. We're going to start off with a, it's a real quick story, but it's a really interesting one. The U.S. has banned equipment from Huawei and ZTE, citing national security concerns. As far as I can tell from this article, this is like a straight up blanket ban. This is not just like, oh, you can't use it in the public sector. You can't use it in government. Like, just no, you can't sell this anymore in the U.S., which is really interesting in my opinion. They also did ban Hytera, Hangzhou, Hikvision, and Dalua, and I probably screwed up all those names, but those ones were only banned for use in the public sector, specifically public safety or government facility security. So yeah, again, they're not the only ones who are questionable on their security practices, but still, that's a pretty big step. So that's big news. All right, the TSA, which is the Transportation Security Administration, as we just verified, um, mainly, you probably know these people in the U.S. Uh, at the airports. They now want to scan your face at security. Here are your rights. 16 major domestic airports are testing facial recognition to test verify IDs, and it could go nationwide in 2023. And they couldn't find a list of airports. Um, but currently, the system is one-to-one. You insert your ID, look at the camera, and it matches the face to the ID. A human is there to make the final call if the machine flags you. The TSA claims they aren't using the data for law enforcement purposes, nor are they storing the data, except when they do store it for 24 months for analytics purposes to see how well the system's working. So they do store the data. Um, Also, the part where in the future they hope to use face scans without ID needed. But the database is encrypted. So I'm just throwing random pieces of, like, information at you just you can make of that what you will uh right now tsa claims you can opt out and tell the officer you don't want your photo taken and have to be manually verified all right we do have some good news out of the u.s though congress has sent the safe connections act to the president's desk so this is a new bill that would make it easier for domestic violence survivors to separate a phone plan while keeping their phone number so if the you know somebody's trying to leave their spouse significant other domestic partner whatever And, you know, nowadays your phone number is pretty important. It's, you know, it's where you get all your calls. It's where you get, hopefully, not too often, but for some places, it's where you still get your two-factor. And changing a phone number can be really, really difficult. So 
for survivors who are trying to leave an abuse situation, it can be difficult for them to separate their phone plans so that the abuser no longer controls their number and still keep their number. And this bill is basically just trying to fix that. So, yeah, um, that's good news. Um, I'm sure the president will sign that. I don't see any reason that he wouldn't, but hopefully he does. And, yeah, seems like a win from my perspective. South Dakota has banned TikTok from state government phones. Not for everyone. Um, That's pretty much the title. I don't think that's super controversial. Um, And I'm sure it has to do similar. It's very similar to TikTok ties to China, which we talked about earlier with like Huawei and that band. So uh, that's kind of the context there. Our next story comes from France, who has said none to Office 365 and Google Workspace in schools. Uh, Basically, the Ministry of National Education has decided that the free versions of software like Office and Google are not allowed because of their data concerns. Uh, Paid versions will probably be more allowed because typically when you pay, you have more control over what data they collect or, you know, it's kind of that whole if a product's free, you're the product. And for the record, especially with companies like Microsoft and Google, just because you pay doesn't mean you're totally safe. But generally speaking, again, if you pay, you tend to have a little more control over your uh, your data and the settings and stuff. And uh, on a similar note, Microsoft Office 365 was also declared illegal in German schools Again, so this comes from Tutanota. From context, I believe Office 365 was declared illegal in 2019. Uh, kind of the same thing, due to GDPR incompatible data policies. And apparently recently, Microsoft tried to update their policies to be a little bit more GDPR compliant. But Germany said, you know, still not good enough and you cannot use it in schools. Meta fined 265 million euros for not protecting Facebook users' data from scrapers. But this comes from the Irish Data Protection Commission, the DPC, as a result of a massive 2021 data leak exposing the information of hundreds of millions of users worldwide. The exposed data included mobile numbers, Facebook IDs, names, genders, locations, relationship statuses, occupations, date of births, and email addresses. Our next story, um, this one's interesting. Okay, so uh, the headline says, police tracked traffic of all national ISPs to catch pirate IPTV users. I believe this came from Italy. The article states that it is common for authorities to use seized piracy sites to instill fear in the users by claiming they've been logged upon visiting, but no action has actually ever come of it before. So uh, basically, like, an example is um, if they seize a website and they take it down, they'll put up a page that says, you know, if you go visit the website after it's been seized, they put up a page that's like, oh, this website was seized for illegal activity. Your IP address has been logged. Basically trying to tell you, like, hey, don't try to visit any more pirate sites because now we have your IP address and we're coming after you. But uh, they've never actually done that before. It's just a fear tactic. This time, something actually happened. Uh, Police seized a website, and then after it was seized, they sent letters to visitors. But the really interesting part here is police are claiming that they didn't just, like, collect user logs from the site. So, like, the, the typical way this would be done, probably the easiest way, is they seize the site, and then they just record the IP address of everyone who visits. They are claiming that they basically man in the middle of the entire country, and they uh, analyzed all the traffic in the country to see who was visiting the site, rather than just relying on IP addresses. We're not sure if that's true. They might be full of crap. That might be more fear tactics. Yeah, I don't know. This is just this is a really, really interesting story with a lot of implications either way. Truthfully, I doubt we'll hear an update over whether or not that's true. But I, I mean, if we do hear anything, of course, we'll keep you guys updated. India requires Internet services to collect and store vast amounts of customer data, building a path to mass surveillance. This is an analysis from the EFF regarding India's directions 
which came into effect on June 28th without any consultation or public input. EFF argues that these new directions enable surveillance and jeopardize the right to privacy in India, raising alarms among human rights and digital rights defenders. The directions force data to be stored locally and logging to be kept on a variety of services and providers, indiscriminate data retention, think back to our VPN logging stories in the past, um, which is also stemming from this story, and grant CERT additional powers to order providers to turn over data. So this is really just an analysis piece from the EFF that's breaking down this um, this story that we've been talking about now for months. So, man, time flies. Our next story comes from Malaysia. The headline says, out of police lockup, Twitter user, I'm going to screw this up, at Bumi Langit insists extremist views have no place in Malaysia, including social media. Quoting the article, the 39-year-old who exposed what he deemed to be racially and religiously divisive content on social media throughout the 15th general election was arrested last Thursday for sedition. I'm not even going to try that name. Uh, The Twitter user turned himself in after being told that he had uploaded a post insulting the royal family but was not told which post it was and was held for two days. It's also worth noting that he's a reporter for the Malaysian Insight. This appears to be an attack on journalism because he's a reporter who was recently doing a series of articles about how... Uh, like extremist speech and hate speech and stuff have been running rampant on social media. But he also notes that like people have been reporting it and the content's not being taken down or not in a timely fashion at least. And then out of nowhere, all of a sudden he's told like, hey, you posted something illegal. You got to turn yourself in. But they didn't tell him what he posted. And he's like, what did I post that was illegal? So um, I don't know. There's there's some privacy implications there just with the concept of like having a social media presence and like putting a target on your back. But it's just a, a really weird story because it's like it seems almost like that was a pretext for arresting him. Uh, could be an attack on journalism. I, I'm not gonna lie; I'm kind of speculating a little bit because, again, I don't know much about Malaysia and uh, stuff like that. But it, it seems to be a really interesting story. Just again, the part where he was not told what he was actually being arrested for. So, yeah, interesting story. Be careful when you post stuff; you might put a target on your back. Australia will now find firms up to fifty million Australian dollars. For data breaches. This is an update to a story we've covered before. Australia has passed the law that raises the penalty for data breaches. Like we said, it is now 50 million, three times the value of any benefit obtained through the misuse of information, or 30% of a company's adjusted turnover within that period. With that, we'll move into our free and open source, or FOSS News section. Um, you guys might have heard about this one. So Tumblr is adding support for ActivityPub, which is the social protocol powering Mastodon and other apps. There is no date listed, but right now uh, Tumblr is apparently overwhelmed dealing with the waves of new users coming from Twitter, but apparently they were already planning to integrate ActivityPub. Um, this is, I believe, the result of a Q&A somewhere where the CEO just kind of mentioned, he's like, yeah, it's on our radar. We're just a little busy right now. Like we, Apparently they've actually been working on it already, and they're just kind of like, we, we got to pause that right now. So regardless of your feelings about Mastodon or Tumblr, I think we should consider this good news because interoperability is one of the best ways to make the internet more open and free and tear down those walled gardens like apple so um yeah this is i think really good news no matter what way you cut it and then just to add on that Flickr is considering adding activity pub as well they said that they've been considering it for a while but it would require them to deprioritize other things on the roadmap including things that users have requested so he wanted to see how much interest there was so far, it seems that 91% of respondents have been in favor of the move, while 8.9% said no. And then there's more in there about, like, should it be a paid feature? Should it be a free feature? But, yeah. So, again, regardless of how you feel about these apps, I, I think that would be good because it makes the internet look more like 
what it should, in our opinion. I did want to just chime in. For people who don't understand ActivityPub, it's um, like the communication protocol that's used for a lot of Fediverse stuff. So, um, for example, there's something called PixelFed. PixelFed is like an Instagram alternative. If you're using Mastodon, you can actually view people's PixelFed posts directly from Mastodon. You just type in their handle and you can view all their images. That's why people are like, hey, Henry, why do you have like four different Mastodon accounts when they look at my account? It's like, no, I don't have four Mastodon accounts. I only have one. But I, I follow my Bookworm account, which is like Goodreads, but it integrates with ActivityPub. Um, it also has a PixelFed account, which is like my Instagram page. And so anytime I post something there, it actually shows up on Mastodon as well. Everything communicates with itself. So theoretically, you could just open a Mastodon account and see everything on Tumblr when they roll out ActivityPub. Just to add some insight there for people who have never heard of ActivityPub and don't really know how the Fediverse works. FYI, PeerTube does that too. So if you're on Mastodon or PixelFed or any of that stuff, you can follow Surveillance Report or TechLore or the new oil on PeerTube, and it'll show up right in your feed. Mailbox.org, which is like a whole mail ecosystem. They have other things too, like calendars and stuff like that, but we're going to talk about that. So they have new features for improved collaboration, like appointment scheduling and multi-user text editing. This is included in the premium and standard plans. These new features appear to be integrations from Framadate and Etherpad. I haven't heard of Framadate before. But while Framadate integration will allow users to schedule events and to run polls and also feature invitations by link or email address, password protection, poll expiration date, display of results, and customizable URLs. Etherpad will allow for real-time collaborative editing and integrated chat, plus import, export, edit history, comments, and more. That's probably just going to be Etherpad with some kind of mailbox.org wrapper that integrates with their ecosystem. So um, you can still use Etherpad individually. There's lots of other services. I think you can even use Etherpad in like Nextcloud and things like that. But um, it sounds like Mailbox is just directly rolling that into its own feature set, which is really cool if you're a mailbox.org user. Our next story is a really, really quick one, and it's kind of just to let you guys know. This comes from Molvad. It says, ending support for cryptocurrency refunds. So um, previously, Molvad offered refunds for certain cryptocurrencies, I think like Bitcoin and maybe Bitcoin Cash. Um, I don't think they've ever offered it for Monero. They're now just getting rid of it entirely. And this is just another step in their attempts to retain as little information about their users as possible. Because in order to give you a refund, they have to keep information on file, like where did that come from? What date was it? Which account is yours? They have to link it to the account so they know all that kind of stuff. And they're just trying to, again, have as little information about you as possible. That's the thing. If you pay with crypto, beware of that. In news that I'm finally, like, I'm like, wow, finally, Proton has finally released Proton Calendar for iPhone out of beta. So this is good. I actually haven't tested it yet, but Nate has. Apparently there's no widget, which is like, what? Like, why would you not have a calendar widget? But there is one on Android and uh, their Proton VPN on iOS still uses the ancient widget system that you have to like swipe over to use. So I think it's cool. I'm excited. I, I should be happy about this, especially as someone who uses Proton Calendar. But um, I'm like, come on. It's like not hard to just add a widget. <laughs> it's a big deal. <laughs> Our next story is also a quick one. Just a lot of quick stories this week. Well, at least in the FOSS section. Um, says Threema for Android introduces group calls. Title's really self-explanatory. The article says Threema for iOS will support group calls at a later date. So if you're a Threema user, you can now do group calls on Android. Clam AV, which is like an open source antivirus engine, 1.0.0 long-term support has been released. Lots of the details here are technical, but in general, it comes with better detection and a bunch of bug fixes. So if you use Clam AV or you use 
any kind of anti-malware that relies on ClamAV's engines, I assume that you uh, should get that update. All right, and with that, we'll move into Misfits, and we're going to start off with a really interesting story. Russian zero-day firm offers $1.5 million for a signal remote code execution exploit. The firm in question is OpZero, if anybody cares, and that price, $1.5 million, that's actually three times Zerodium's offer, which is the next highest offer. Signal, in particular on Android, is in high use by the Ukrainian military, hence why this Russian firm has such an interest in cracking Signal. A lot of people get, I know we mentioned this earlier, a lot of people get really mad, like, oh, you shill Signal, and this thing, and that thing. And, like, stuff like this is why. Like, I'm a big believer in follow the money. Where is the money? $1.5 million for a Signal exploit. To me, that's pretty convincing that Signal's probably really secure. And for the record, there's other messengers out there that are fine. Like, you know, we're not saying you have to use Signal. We're just saying, like, yeah, there's a reason that we're fans of Signal is because clearly it has something going for it if people are offer, willing to offer you a million and a half dollars just to crack it. We've both complained about Signal plenty on this podcast, too. But we also say a lot of good things because there's a lot of good things to say about Signal. What are you talking about? Huh? I certainly will not die on the hill that removing SMS was a terrible decision. Yeah, that was... I have never criticized Signal in my life. I mean, I was... I still (laughs) criticize Signal for its huge dependence on having to share a phone number. And there's, like, a lot... There are real complaints I have with Signal. For the longest time, they didn't even have, like, an M1 client for MacBook devices, which is, like, ridiculous. It's just there's a lot of good stuff to talk about Signal. Not that there's not other great projects out there, too, but they're not doing much right now. They're not getting one and a half million... I was right about to say that. As soon as Threema has a $1.5 million bounty, we'll talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Hey, if if this was Briar, it would be Briar. Not saying that Signal's better than Briar. I actually probably think Briar's better in a lot of things than Signal. I was going to say, that would be really dope to see that for Briar. Yeah. I'd be excited about that. I just think it's probably, like, it's less used. Up next, Mali GPU patch gap leaves Android users vulnerable to attacks. This is a set of five exploitable vulnerabilities in ARM's Mali GPU driver. It has remained unfixed months after the chipmaker patched them, leaving potentially millions of Android devices exposed to attacks. From what we can tell, Mali is a chip manufacturer used in a variety of Android phones. Among those devices are the Pixel 7s and the Pros, the OnePlus 10R, Samsung Galaxy S10 and S9, and Huawei Mate 8. Older devices, which the article lists, are unlikely to be patched and should be updated altogether. And a fix is currently in testing for the Pixels, and other devices will get updates downstream. So again, keep things up to date. And also, this is a really sad one. I hate saying this as someone who's like very much like a minimalist. Like I don't want to like buy things I don't need to buy at heart. It sucks, but sometimes like depending on your threat model, older devices just have like inherent hardware issues that are really hard to get rid of. And so if if you're someone with like a super high security threat model, you might need to like buy phones more frequently, even though you're still getting software security updates. Like I know there's some older Apple devices that yes, they've had a lot of like software updates, but there's still some of the issues with the chips in them that are unlikely to ever impact you. It's just for very high threat model stuff that we're talking about here. I think it could also be helpful to hold on to those old devices as like experimental devices. You know, I mentioned that I have a lineage phone that I literally got because my mom was like, hey, I have a bunch of old Androids lying around. Do you want any of them? So I looked up the models and I'm like, oh, this one can do lineage. I'm going to flash this phone. So that way, if I brick it and screw up the process, no harm, no foul. It's a cheap piece of crap old phone that no one's using. And so, yeah, like I'm, I'm with you. Like I get it. Like I don't want to be environmentally unfriendly, but you should have the most secure device. Like you should have 
devices that are currently supported for security reasons. But yeah, that doesn't mean your old device has to go straight into a dumpster. You can use it to set up a second signal account or use it as a test device for an OS you're interested in trying out or, you know, just anything really. So I don't know. I just wanted to offer more to that. Yeah. Repurposing devices is a good alternative if you feel awful for having to get new devices for this reason. Our next story is also about Android uh, vulnerabilities. It says Samsung LG MediaTek certificates compromised to sign Android malware. Title really says it all. Um, This can allow devices to trust apps that are signed with this like official certificate and give them elevated privileges, which the apps can then leverage for malicious behavior. The vendors are being advised to issue new certificates and revoke the old ones so that they are no longer trusted. But we'll see what happens. iCloud for Windows users claim images and videos from strangers are showing up in their library. The title says it all. This is about all we know at the time, and Apple hasn't really commented or said anything about this, so I'm sure there's going to be an update to this in the next surveillance report, so keep following us. Our next story is just something I wanted to put on everybody's radar. The title says Google Translate for phishing. Um, Basically, some attackers are using Google Translate links to bypass malicious link detection systems. So for those who are not aware, I actually just realized this recently, you can actually translate an entire web page with Google Translate. Like you can go to Google Translate, paste in the the link. I don't know if this is the exact steps or what, but you can paste in the link and it'll basically generate the page, but it'll translate everything. Um, I've, I've seen that a lot on Reddit. You know, people will post news stories in other languages and they'll share it as a Google Translated article. And um, because it redirects to a Google domain instead of whatever the original thing is, some attackers are using that to, like, get past those malicious link detections. So just something to be aware of. If you see, uh, like, a Google Translate link, make sure you trust the source who's sending it to you before you click on it. No! Grad students analyze, hack, and remove under-desk surveillance devices designed to track them. I'm just reading the headline, people. Um, So a fun story at Northeastern University Heat sensors were installed under desks, according to one faculty member, to understand desk usage better and better allocate where desks were needed. Though this is argued as students have to use their badges to check into class where desks are assigned, which can be easily used to infer desk usage anyway. Students attempted to raise concerns with the staff, but they were basically brushed off, so students began to remove the devices and hack them. They found that devices were not secure or encrypted, which was claimed, and eventually assembled them into a public art piece where they arranged them to spell out the word No, which is why the headline says no. Uh, More meetings took place, more chaos, and eventually the students won. So 100% recommend reading the full story. Okay, and our last story of the week is also just a fun story. The headline says cybersecurity researchers take down DDoS botnet by accident. Uh, Quoting the article, while analyzing its capabilities, Akami researchers have accidentally taken down a crypto mining botnet that was also used for distributed denial of service attacks, unquote. So basically, the malware was discovered after it infected one of the researchers' honeypots, which is the thing researchers do. And, um, you know, once they have it, they start playing around with it. They see what it does. They try to pick it apart. And while they were uh, experimenting, researchers accidentally, accidentally sent it a command with wrong syntax, which basically caused it to crash. I guess I, I don't really uh, understand how they did this, but apparently that command was sent to the entire network. I don't know why, when they were just supposed to be playing around with their little honeypot, but yeah, um, killed the entire network by accident because they forgot to put a space in there. Okay, that will take us into our Q&A section. Thank you guys for bearing with us. I know it's been a long week. Um, Our first question comes from a non-patron, 
who says, can you guys explain a little bit more about the concerns of digital fingerprinting and whether someone with an average slash low threat model really needs to worry about it? Okay, even browsers like Brave don't seem to resist fingerprinting very well as I've tested out so, tested on several sites and they always come back as being unique. So it seems next to impossible to completely do away with fingerprinting. Thus, is it really such a big deal? Okay, so here's, here's my thoughts and I'm sure Henry has some thoughts too. Uh, number one, I really don't trust most of those, uh, you know, what's my fingerprint websites. Um, there's one that I trust and I'll tell you why. I trust EFFs cover your tracks and that's because they give you data points. So all of those other websites, they're comparing you to every other user and they're saying, how unique are you? The reason I trust EFFs is because they don't just say like, oh, you look like one out of X many browsers. They say, here's how many points of data we were able to capture about you that we can use for fingerprinting. And in my opinion, that's way more useful. I'm not saying it's a Bible. I'm not saying you should trust it. But if you do use one of those sites, that's the one I would recommend for that reason. And if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've been there. I think they do still do the whole like one out of X many browsers. Just ignore that part. Just pay attention to like, here's the data we were able to collect. Having said that, um, so browser fingerprinting, for those who don't know, is a technique where companies will basically try to fingerprint you with your browser. They'll to look at like the different fonts you have installed, the plugins you or extensions you have installed, um, things like that. They don't look at your bookmarks. I think someone asked about that recently. And they'll try to um, track you across the web by seeing how unique you are. I think it's something you should be aware of. I, I don't think it's something worth losing sleep over because the fact is there are a lot of ways to fingerprint you. And also the fact is we're not 100% sure how this stuff works because every company is a little bit different. Some of them might go a little bit harder and collect a little more data. Some of them might not really collect a lot. Um, so it's it's really hard to know what you need to defend against and you know, I, a threat model. If you have a low threat model, then it's probably not worth losing sleep over. Having said that, I do think there are some things, some low hanging fruit that everyone should do. Like for example, not having a lot of plugin uh, extensions. I keep wanting to call them plugins and someone corrected me on that recently. Um, not having a lot of extensions because the more extensions you have, the easier you are to fingerprint. The reason Brave doesn't seem like it's working is because they actually do fingerprint randomization. So they're not resisting it. They're spoofing it. They're confusing it. How effective is this? There's a lot of debate about that. Um, there's some people that say the Firefoxes is better because they actually resist fingerprinting. There's other people that say Firefox makes you stand out. It's better to just spoof it. And then there's certain people out there. All of it is really not that effective and there are better ways to do it and you really shouldn't worry about it. Um, so yeah, all that to say in answer to your question, should you worry about it? I think there are some things you should do like use Brave or enable resist fingerprinting if you're comfortable with that because I know it... I think it breaks like your browser's clock and sets it to UTC zero, which can be annoying in some cases. Um, if if you're able to put up with that, then I would say to I would do that because I I think it's probably better than nothing, but it's definitely not going to make you anonymous. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of different ways you can be fingerprinted. Um, I don't think it's worth losing sleep over. Um, you got anything to add to that one? Or yeah, I took notes while you were talking. Um, first, I've seen two. <laughs> so this is based on my research. And I'm going to kind of relay the things that I've come across. doesn't mean it's fact or anything like that. But it seems like the two common schools of thought when it comes to dealing with uh, fingerprinting is randomization versus anonymization. And so you have people like Brave who take the randomization approach. Like every website gets its own fingerprint. Um, and that's kind of their approach. And then you have people like Tor who go the anonymization routes to try to make everyone look the same. One thing, I'm not going to comment on the effectiveness of either of them. I'm just saying like those are kind of the two schools of thought. And one thing I'm going to say here is a very common, I almost consider this a myth at this point. I hear a lot of people say, 
I just use Chrome. Plain vanilla Chrome because it's not fingerprintable. Because I look like everyone else. And actually, that's not true. There's been actual research studied. There's like actual research and there's actual studies showing that even on stock vanilla Chrome, you're still like 98% fingerprintable. So it's not just keeping your browser vanilla. It's not just using common browsers. These are actually like unique traits about your specific configuration and things like your time zone, things that you can't really control. So even with a vanilla browser, it's still fingerprintable. So that is kind of a common thing that I'd almost consider a myth at this point. So I think you're not going to be any worse using something like Brave or Firefox or really anything that has any layer of fingerprint resistance. Um, the other thing too is this is going to vary by device, right? Uh, if you're on an iOS device, Safari has very little fingerprinting protection. So if you use Brave instead of Safari on something like an iOS device, there's like real perks to that. And not many browsers on iOS actually have fingerprint resistance. And so that's, again, like it's going to vary by device. And then something like Tor on iOS, you should just assume has no anonymization because there's no official Tor browser and it's impossible right now for there to be like a truly anonymized Tor browser on iOS. So just things like that. And um, Nate has his thoughts and I think we're kind of on the same page. I, I personally don't think the average person needs to worry about this. Um, it's a higher threat model issue for me. Um, and for most people, and it's one of those things that's only reasonably addressed from what I've seen by Tor and anonymization tools like Unix. And just that restriction alone makes it something that only higher threat model people can use. So those are all the thoughts I have. I'm glad you mentioned Tor. I completely forgot to mention that. Yeah, if, if you are concerned about it, you should be using Tor. Otherwise, yeah, like he said, like some of them do try to do some stuff, like Brave does a little bit, Firefox does a little bit, especially if you enable the resist fingerprinting, but... Tor is really the only one that I would trust if you were like, no, this is a real concern for me. So, yeah, thanks for bringing up Tor. I completely forgot about that. The next question is from Frank S., and this is, I guess, for me. Um, hey, Henry, you mentioned being a runner. What are you currently training for, and what are some of your PRs or races that you really enjoyed? Um, yeah, people don't know much about this. So uh, I competed at, I think, a pretty high level in high school, and I went to, like, a D1 program in college for a couple years. And... I do compete in both cross country and track, but track's my main sport. Uh, 800 meters is my main event. I think my PR is like 150, low 153, somewhere around there, which is pretty good. Um, it's not like amazing, but that's pretty darn good and pretty fast. I just finished my cross country season back here. Um, I really just want to get some racing under my belt because I normally use CrossFit to train for track. And so this track season, I'm trying to get 150 or lower and I want to break four in the 1500. So those are my goals in this upcoming track season. Feel free to follow me on my personal site, hen.omg.lol. There's a Fediverse section. That's where I post updates to the stuff I do. If you want to follow anything I do, for if you care about that for whatever reason. I miss running. Running's fun, man. Ah, like my days are just It really so is. I yeah, One of the reasons I'm so tired right now and I'm just so emotionally drained is I just finished my two to three week break after cross country. I just started running again these last few days. So I'm starting fin finally... I'm, I'm starting to finally feel good again, but going two to three weeks without running, just my whole routine just completely gets annihilated. It really is such a grounding thing for me. I think everyone needs like a daily movement to ground them. It helps so much with life. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I agree with that. I, I used to run, I've kind of started running on a treadmill just out of necessity whenever I do have the time to run. But yeah, I used to run like around a lake or out in the middle of nowhere, like through a park path or something like that. Like, yeah, just getting out there. Even if you have headphones in, just being in that nature and like, oh man, it was wonderful. Okay, 
Our next question comes from Kenny, who says, hey, Nathan and Henry, I'm wondering what are your thoughts about the security of Mega.NZ as an online storage provider, and if there's a better and more private slash security respecting alternative, if it isn't good. I've tried to use encryption tools like Cryptomator, even with Mega, but I found them to be inconvenient for file sharing and restoring data. I think we have split opinions on this one. Um, Mega did recently have an issue where uh, some researchers showed that their code was kind of sloppy, and they had a vulnerability that could have potentially exposed your data to insiders. There's no evidence that it ever happened, but it was there and it was still not a good look. Um, they do claim they've since fixed that vulnerability. But again, the the researchers were kind of like, yeah, they probably fixed it. But also again, code is very sloppy. Who knows what other vulnerabilities are there? I think if your threat model is low and I think if you're storing non-sensitive data, I think Mega's fine. Like, I don't know, you can cut this if you don't want people to know, but we use Mega to send surveillance report back and forth to each other, like the actual files for whoever's editing that week, because um, it's not really a big deal. If it's something sensitive, you probably shouldn't be using the cloud at all, to be totally honest. Um, I'll be honest, I don't think there are a lot of really good secure cloud options out there. Um, Proton Drive, I would trust reputation-wise, but it's also still pretty buggy. Like, I know... Um, keep throwing you under the bus here, but Henry's told me in the, in the past when Proton Drive first came out, we tried switching to that to share files. And Henry said that it would fail like four out of five times. He would try to download it on his end. I have updates to that, by the way. I'll show you the updates on that soon. You can keep talking. So yeah, so like that one, I trust them reputation wise, but as far as actual performance, it's kind of meh. And plus there's also no apps right now, which is hugely freaking annoying. I was going to say the uh, Cryptomator like that is what a lot of people suggest is like use Cryptomator regardless because then you're not trusting the cloud as much. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, I, I do have, so on my website, the new oil.org slash backups, I do have a list of cloud providers. There's really not a lot of good options, but maybe that'll help, I guess. Uh, we're not really split on this. I actually, um, I think that the mega vulnerability spoke to, I guess, a layer of incompetence within how mega was doing its stuff. But relative to everything else right now, like we still use Mega for all Techler stuff. Granted, like all we use it for is like production stuff. It's not a super high threat model use case. We just share video files and we keep some of our scripts up there and stuff like that. It's not that big of a deal. Um, I like Mega. It's It has like an actual usable experience unlike Proton Drive, which I find unusable. Um, and here's the problem. So um, I, us, I asked around a little bit. Um, Proton Drive, I think, really needs to better advertise what they can realistically offer people. Because it's in a web format, when you're... Nate sent me, like, a 14-gigabyte video file for surveillance support once. And every single time I tried downloading it, it would finish the 14-gigabyte download, which is super slow, by the way. I don't know what servers Proton Drive is using, because I have, like, a 1,000 down where I live. And it would took, like, 45 minutes to download this one file. Every time I tried downloading it, it would just say, Error. And it said, error, colon, error. It didn't say what the error was. And I asked around, and it <laughs> seems like... That's a like, Yes. Awful. I asked around. It seems like because of the way uh, Proton uses end-to-end -end encryption within the browser, and that requires a lot of system resources to be able to decrypt and encrypt data at that large of a quantity. And so it's very possible that Proton actually can't realistically actually support large files, and they're not advertising that. They're advertising this as, like, all this storage. I don't think... I need to test this more. I don't think you can realistically even, like, download 10 gigabyte files using Proton Drive right now in its current state. They need clients. So... That yeah. actually checks out. 
we need to like test this more. But as far as I know, it seems like Proton can't actually realistically even claim that they can have huge files. This is just public information, but I know when Crypty released video support, I think they limited it to something like 500 megabytes. They had a limitation and there was a big Reddit thread about this. Someone was like, why is it so small? Blah, blah, blah. Like they got really angry because of this new feature. And uh, John, the owner of Crypty responded and he said like, hey, like it's like not possible. Like if you have end-to-end encryption with like a huge file like that in a browser, it's gonna like overload system resources, even on like powerful devices. And the person's like, that's not true because Proton Drive did this. And then they got into it and people were like, they actually started testing big files with Proton Drive, and they found that, like, yeah, it just doesn't work. So, yeah, I need to do more research into this myself. I want to test this out myself, but it does seem like... Sorry, to answer the question, I got really off track there. I like Mega. It's one of, like, the better... <laughs> it's the least evil one that I can... They have open source clients. So, like, if you're using Mega on your devices, it's open source, which is nice. It's end-to-end encrypted. Um, and at least there's a lot of eyes on it, so it's not just a random end-to-end encrypted cloud provider. Like, there's actually researchers who were able to find these like massive issues with mega which was good so yeah i don't have anything else to add there take that for whatever it's worth but i have actually had really good experiences with sync.com i've heard great things about sync.com um, we use it yeah we use it for my band um just to share like files and demos and stuff while we're while we're songwriting and like yeah it it's free it um it has clients for I think all the operating systems. The last question comes from Growog Hawk. Growog Hosh. I'm really sorry. I don't know how to say your name. Um, but it's on the screen for video listeners. Uh, they ask, do you have any suggestions for an easy-to-use firewall, preferably one with a GUI? Any downsides with using Safing's Portmaster? Like, is it sending any telemetry back to Safing? Um, I think Safing's Portmaster is awesome. It's open source. Uh, there should be, if there is any telemetry, there should be some kind of uh, opt-in or opt-out option in the settings. Great service. If you're on Mac OS, I can comfortably recommend uh, Lulu, which is an open source uh, firewall for Mac OS. If you want something a little more, more powerful and maybe nicer, there's Little Snitch, but that's like paid. And I don't believe it's open source. Yeah, I always recommend firewalls. They're nice. They give you the option to pretty much cut out certain domains and things like that. Now, one thing I will say... This is a personal thing. Um, I've really been diving into NextDNS recently, and I'm setting that up on all my devices, and so I'm able to like block a lot of things now on just the DNS level. And if you use a VPN like iVPN, which integrates super well with NextDNS um, on every device, including on iOS, you pretty much can block anything you want. So on NextDNS iVPN on iOS, you can actually block like Apple's native analytics that it does on iOS with that configuration, which is like super cool. So. Um, just things to send your way to think about. Unless, uh, do you have anything to add there, Nate? I know for Windows, Simple Wall, I think it is, is um, it's kind of like Lulu, but for Windows in the sense that when you install it, it'll immediately start like every single connection. It'll pop up like, hey, do you want to allow this? And like, it gets really overwhelming really fast. But it, it, in that sense, it's really nice because it asks you on a case by case basis. Lockdown on iOS, Blockheta on Android, AdGuard, DNS. Blocking, yeah, I've heard good things about next next DNS. I've never, I think I've used it a little bit myself, but I've never really like dived into the the setting up your own account and <clears throat> excuse me and like customizing it and everything. But yeah, uh, I will say if you haven't used next DNS yet, I recommend just trying it out because I think once you start using it, you're like, oh wow, this is awesome. And if you already use iVPN, you're living in luxury because it just has native DNS over HTTPS support for your own custom DNS. 
on all of their clients, including on iOS, which is a very hard one to set up a VPN and NextDNS at the same time for. So yeah, it's it's hard as well with Mulvad. Mulvad, you have to do like a custom WireGuard configuration and use the WireGuard client. It's ridiculous. If you use iVPN, it's like one of the best services to just use DNS over HTTPS with NextDNS. If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, just check out NextDNS and just do the official stuff. If you know what I'm talking about, the more technical stuff, um, you might think like, oh, that's a pretty cool config when you hear about it. Before we wrap things up, I did want to quickly go through our review of the week. Um, we need more reviews because we're going to run out of them soon. So make sure you're leaving your reviews. Um, but this comes from Hyper Jedi that says, informative and taught me a lot that I didn't know. I really don't remember how I found TechLore and the new oil, but I do not regret it. I loved when I found out that they had a podcast and have listened to every episode. Thank you, Hyper Jedi. And they say overall very informative, sometimes funny. I know I am the humor of the show and Nate is never funny. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm picking on you a lot I don't today. know how humor works. <laughs> no, you're funny too. We're both Susie funny. Susie will be very happy to hear that because I always pick on her. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, you're funny too. We're both funny. Um, and they say they enjoy every episode. Thank you to TechLearn and New Oil for this podcast and their goal to make privacy accessible to everyone. Thank you for the awesome review and the awesome comment. And uh, we're excited to read the next review next week. So leave your reviews. Oh, and I'm doing the outro. Uh, that's it for this week. Telegram again is handing over user data. WhatsApp has a data breach. Anchor's Yuffie has seriously messed up. LastPass suffered a data breach and like so much more news. It was awful to get through this, but we're just being honest. It was awful to get through this. I'm exhausted. I'm glad to be done. Um, the promo segment, again, Patreon. Join our Patreon. There are some fun tiers there for you. We also have Monero if you want to support us privately. That stuff is super appreciated. And it allows us to keep this news for free for all of you, which is just incredible. We love doing this and we hear from all of you that you love it. And so thank you for your support. Just to finish it out, thank you for listening. The final thing we want to ask is to share the podcast around and to spread it to more people. We really rely on word of mouth. That's like super important because like a lot of these stories are hard to brand we can't like lean that much into the youtube algorithm without being like oh my god you should stop using telegram with a giant caution sign in the thumbnail so like to avoid that please just share the videos around so we can spread naturally and organically and we want privacy to reach as many people as possible you can directly help us do that thanks again for listening and see you next week